Hey, it's Nancy. Before we begin today, I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Crime Beat early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. As you know from listening to Crime Beat, there's a lot of work that goes into bringing you these stories. I talk to investigators, lawyers, and even criminals themselves. I dig through thousands of documents, files, and court exhibits. I've said it many times, journalism matters. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And today, I want to introduce you to one of my colleagues at Global News and Curious Cast. News reporter Erica Vela is doing some amazing work on her podcast, What Happened To? On this unique history podcast, Erica talks to the people at the heart of the most gripping news stories and revisits major news events that captured our attention, including the fire at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. She tracks down some of the most fascinating characters who made headlines, like Ted Williams, the man with the golden voice. So today, I'd love to have you listen to and follow Erica's podcast, What Happened To? The video is a minute and a half long. A shaky camera frames a man who appears to be experiencing homelessness. Standing at the side of the road, he holds a sign that says in part, I have the God-given gift of a great voice. And when he speaks... And we'll be back with more right after these words. The smooth timbre of his baritone voice sends vibrations through the body of anyone who hears him. More than 10 years ago, this 90-second video became an instant viral sensation. But I've often wondered, who was that man? And what led him to that intersection in Columbus, Ohio? Did that video change his life? And where is he now? I'm journalist Erica Vela, and this is Global News What Happened to Ted Williams, the man with the golden voice. When the video was first released in 2011, it was instantly viewed millions of times on YouTube, and the man at the heart of it skyrocketed to fame. He made dozens of TV appearances on major news programs in the U.S. I wanted to hear his story, learn about who he is and where he came from. Ted Williams spoke with me over the phone from his home in Ohio, but he grew up in Brooklyn, New York. He told me about his childhood. He was adopted, the only child to his mother and father. I was raised in an African-American family, and so... Because of my fair, complected skin, I had to uh, show that I was uh, part of everybody else's family or part of the neighborhood. So proving myself was quite a challenge. Ted said he knew he was lucky. He was close with his mother and his father worked for Eastern Airlines. And one of the perks was traveling at a young age. And so I was one of the uh, chosen people who had flown all over the world, down in the Caribbean and uh, uh the Virgin Islands and Mexico and Honolulu. And, you know, I'd come back to my ghetto-ass neighborhood and try to tell <laughs> and tell my friends what it was like. And they'd be like, okay, go get the baseball and bat. Let's go out and play ball. You know, they really didn't care. or could, You couldn't conceive it other than what they uh, visualized uh, on TV, you know, various places I'd been. 
So I was very fortunate there. Me and my mom became very, very, very close. I was her um, her son, you know, her only son. And, and uh, she kept me dressed all the time. You know, very, um, my attire always had uh, socks that matched the, the shoes and, you know, little short outfits. And you know, I was very fortunate. I grew up very well. Some people would say with a silver spoon in my mouth, I was spoiled and all of that. Ted's childhood was built on routine. Each morning started with a wake-up call from his mother. She'd come in every morning and clap her hands and say, Lazy Teddy, will you get up, will you? And she did it faithfully. I mean, it was my, it was like a damn alarm clock, and I really, really hated it. And, you know, I mean, you, you do chores and, and your homework and all, you go to bed around 10 or 11 o'clock. Before bedtime each night, his family would sit in front of the TV to watch The Tonight Show, and Williams watched captivated. I love the television, Milton Berle, Red Skelton, all those. And I would l- always listen to the, the voiceovers in the commercials uh, or listen to the uh, announcers who, uh, you know, were on The Tonight Show or whatever, you know. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome that kind of thing. He didn't know it yet, but those evenings in front of the TV sparked a curiosity that would turn into a passion later on in life. When Ted was 14 years old, he went on a class trip to a local radio station. It was WWRL. It was an AM urban station. And they had a, a personality on there named Hank Spann. Hank Spann. W. Golden. W-R-L. 33 at WWRL. The servant dealing the feeling inside your mind with the baddest jams I can find on a beautiful Saturday afternoon in New York City. Come on, New Jersey. And Hank was one of those guys that, uh, you know, he epitomized... Good morning, radio. Hi, everybody. Hank Spann with you. It's five minutes after seven o'clock, and we'll be back with more. He had a personality out of this world. We went to go meet Hank Spann. Ted said he was shocked and a little disappointed when he finally met Hank. He came out and he was like, hey, how you doing? Ted, nice to meet you. And and I'm my my perception, my thought, everything that I thought this man, I thought he was going to come out and say, hey, everybody. Hey, Span, how you doing here, Ted? You know, that kind of, and it didn't happen that way. And I was so disappointed, and he could see it in my face. And so um, I, I asked him, I said, how come you don't sound like you do on the radio? And he looked at me and said, Ted, radio is defined as theater of mind. And when I started thinking about it, I did remember early radio. Of course, I was too, a little too young to remember the days of radio pro- programs that were soon to be televised. But uh, it kind of made sense to me. It's like... Uh, So I started just trying to emulate him. Ted's voice became part of his identity. And he said oftentimes people would hear that deep timbre only to be surprised when they saw him. You know, uh, a lot of uh, girlfriends of mine, their mother thought I was entirely too old when I was actually younger than the, the, the girl I was talking to. And as a teenager, he would sometimes play tricks on others. So I started doing a lot of crazy things by phone, telling people that they won uh, prizes. <laughs> I would randomly look in the phone book and pick mine and say, hey, if you answer this question correctly within blah, 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 you know, and they would answer correctly and I'd give them a Cadillac, which of course they never received. So I started having fun and being very mischievous with the voice. Though he was talented and sometimes used that talent to pull pranks, there was a darkness too. From an early age, Ted found himself turning to alcohol. I had an alcohol uh, problem back then. I had an alcohol problem at the age of 12. 
I, I was legitimately drinking Smirnoff 100 proof vodka. And, uh, it was by way of my, as I mentioned, my dad made a lot of trips down to, uh, the Virgin Islands, St. Thomas. And my house stayed stacked with top shelf and medium shelf alcohol. And my father and mother also entertained. And so when people would come over, uh, you know, and they needed uh, their, their drinks to be with more ice or pour a little bit more water in this or whatever. Whatever was in that cup when they gave it to me ended up in my system. So I acquired a very uh, strong taste for Scott uh, as far as dark alcohol. And so at 12 and 13, when most kids were saving their money to buy candy or, or, or comic books and all that, I would get a dollar thirty-five together because I signed shoes. I was only a hustler. Uh, I signed shoes. I had a paper route. I cashed in bottles. I went to the store for everybody in the neighborhood who blessed me with a you know a little gratuity. And so I would buy me a little dollar thirty-five pint of a uh, half pint, and that would you know make me feel a little you know a little good. Drinking would soon evolve and become an addiction that would turn his world upside down. As a journalist and on this very podcast, I have interviewed a lot of people, hundreds, from all walks of life. Often, people can be very guarded in what they say. But Ted was very open about his experiences, and a lot of it was ugly. Drug abuse and other criminal activities. He didn't shy away from it, and I should warn you, it can be difficult to listen to. He told me about his turbulent times as an adult, starting with his time in the military. I enlisted in the United States Army. I served six honorably served years, both active and reserve, three on three. I uh, faced a few uh, violations of the military, the USMJ, U.S. uh, Military Code of Justice. And uh, I was black marketing over in South Korea, if you really want to know. So I was having a ball and... and, uh, I was caught red-handed. I could have been court-martialed and uh, spent a long time at Fort Leavenworth, but uh, fortunately I had a great uh, commanding officer who offered me an early out. He was honorably discharged and was relieved of his duties. That's when Ted decided to pursue a career in radio, first in North Carolina. Uh, I met a girl there, and I got a job at a radio station there. WVOE was my first civilian job as a radio and man when those hotlines lit up and, and all of that and people hey you know was asking for requests as fulfilling as he found the job it became another gaping crack in his relationship with his father my father never thought anything of radio broadcasting he thought radio was no more than just putting a needle on a record and so he didn't think of it as any kind of work worthy uh, job And, you know, if I would have pumped gas, he would have thought that was a great job. If I worked for a steel mill, great job, paper mill or whatever. So he thought radio broadcast was no more than a guy who's trying to talk smooth. So I had a, a bad situation going with me and my dad. I ended up doing a quick little jail stint down in North Carolina. Ted said he had stolen his father's credit card and charged about $4,000 on it. He was arrested charged, and he served several months in jail. But it wouldn't be the last time. In 1979, Ted made the move to Columbus, Ohio. It was familiar to him. His parents lived there before Ted was adopted. And knowing Ted was looking for a fresh start, his mom lent him a helping hand and set him up. My mother 
was very close to a woman in New York who was also from Columbus. And she had a niece that uh, lived in Columbus who was unmarried, but she had a child, a couple of children of her own and ready-made family, so to speak. And uh, she, um, when I got out of uh, incarceration, she opened up her hand, her heart and her home. And uh, I came to Columbus in 1979 and took her children as my own and, uh, you know, loved them. Then I got a job in radio. Uh, I, I started uh, overnight from 7 to midnight. It was Z103. And uh, I was starting to have a ball. Ted quickly rose to the top. He jumped around from station to station. And no matter where he went, his celebrity would follow. And I went to three urban stations with one year, uh, uh, 15 and a half months, unheard of, and came out number one across the board. But behind closed doors, things were getting ugly. He recalled one night in particular. My mother came to Columbus to visit us and uh, the children and all. And uh, I upset the apple cart by uh, my mother and uh, my, my, my uh, wife and my mother. Uh, my mother was placing collect calls to my father. And uh, I told her that um, she didn't have to do that. She could just pick up the phone and call out. I'll pay for it. And uh, at the time, I didn't have a job, but my wife was like making it a real big matter that, you know, we don't have money to be paying long distance calls. My mother said, Ted, don't worry about it. Ted said the argument escalated. He had had enough and decided to leave. I decided to just walk away from my responsibilities as a father, a husband, a provider, protector and all that. Alcoholism had its grip on him. When I went out to entertain at nightclubs, when we had uh, remote broadcasts or it was our special night, 106 night, come on out, ladies night, just say you listen to 106, you get in free. And those kind of events, man, I ran up liquor bills and there was nothing to see me walk out of a nightclub, pissy drunk, you know, and everybody be like, I'll, I'll drive you home, Ted. You know, people was offering me rides and all, but I would just lay in my back seat, fall out and then wake up, drive myself home. Ted was spiraling, and it was about to get worse. In August 1988, Ted's fourth child, his son, was born. And some friends of mine came from a radio station that I worked for in the Cleveland market, and they came down as a congratulatory uh, situation and laced a joint with crack. And uh, it tastes pretty good. It, it kind of gave me that pork, uh, you know, uh, feeling that, that most people that smoke or snort cocaine get aphrodisiac or whatever. And I really liked it. And so as a result, uh, I uh, went from uh, smoking uh, crack lace cigarettes and reefer to or marijuana and cigarettes to uh, buying what they call a glass stick uh, or a glass stem or a pipe and uh, the rest is history. The 80s saw a significant increase in the use of crack cocaine in the United States. The crack epidemic had particularly devastating effects within Black communities and inner cities, causing the increase of addictions, death, and drug-related crimes. Ted was in the depths of his addiction and resorted to unimaginable activities to feed his need. I snowballed into that addiction so deeply that uh, I talked my the mother of my children into selling her body for money to afford. And I exhausted everything that I had ever acquired uh, in my heyday, like uh, leather jackets from various uh, 
record companies like Atlantic, MCA, you know, Polydor and, and Motown and all those kind of things. And, and then I exhausted all my, my jewelry, uh, my cars. And, uh, you know, eventually I just went downhill. Me and my girlfriend, uh, I had the children by, lost custody of our children. And, uh, uh, and as a result, she felt like she could uh, enjoy her money alone. She didn't have to do what she does and uh, afford my, uh, or me, hanging on to her coattails. I was no longer the provider and protector that, that I was in the beginning. So we kind of split up and, uh, you know, I went to a homeless shelter. Uh, I found myself at the doorstep of a homeless shelter here in Columbus that treated me uh, right. Uh, and then I started uh, finding out about the uh, 12-step programs of recovery, Alcoholic and Narcotics Anonymous. And I preferred narcotics because uh, you know, alcohol is not what led me to the road of destruction like crack did. So I felt more uh, favorable towards that. But it's the same thing. A drug's a drug's a drug. I didn't know that at the time. It was clear that Ted was now in a downward spiral. He was involved in nefarious and illegal activities that would in turn help feed his addiction. For many, it could be hard to empathize with someone like that. But Addiction is complicated. So I turned to Denny Carice, a clinical psychologist and chief science officer of Recovery Centers of America, to explain how someone like Ted ended up as he did. She said cocaine is a psychostimulant that stimulates the central nervous system. Every great experience we have in life that we really, really love, like runner's high or really great sex, the peak moment of sex, let's say. All of those are basically just an explosion of dopamine in the nucleus accumbens in the brain. And what an incredible explosion it is. So that's what happens internally, you know, endogenously. So cocaine, amphetamines, they can blow that level of dopamine release up to 10 times as much. So imagine, if you can, Imagine feeling 10 times better than you do at the peak moment of a sexual encounter. It's, it's, it's impossible to imagine. That's why it's so difficult to get off of it, you know? And, and the reality is we just aren't meant to feel that good. Cocaine and amphetamines, they don't make more dopamine in the brain. We make that ourselves. They release it into what's called the synapse area so that it can work there's only a limited amount of it. You know, we only regenerate a certain amount. So after somebody has a cocaine or amphetamine use disorder, they may have depleted a significant amount of that. And it could be quite a time before they can get any pleasure in just real day living after that. Which means the highs are very high, but the lows are low. And there's some evidence that the brain takes quite a bit of time to regenerate activity in that area of the brain that's even close to normal. With methamphetamine, it's about two years. And the feeling down in that low, low is is a feeling of hopelessness. It's a feeling of um, not really knowing why, because maybe nothing bad happened, but biochemically, you you are so far down in the dumps that you may wonder, like, I don't think I can live like this. I, I don't want to feel like this anymore. Um, there's no hope. It's, it's, you know, and you feel that way in spite of the fact that there's every reason to hope because you've got this new fame or career or whatever. So the, the incredible low is much lower than anything we feel, you know, endogenously when we're, we have a letdown. 
it's it's much lower. And so the feelings of despair, hopelessness, not wanting to live are incredibly common. There are also a number of different factors that could steer a person towards addiction. Things like the environment at home or in the community. But she says there's also an element of genetic predispositions. So the genetic loading for these disorders are incredibly high. Um, the, the genetic loading, for example, to become addicted to hallucinogens, to develop a problem with hallucinogens, is at about 39%. For cocaine, it's about 72%. What that means is that about 72% of your likelihood to become addicted once you volitionally pick up cocaine is genetic, right? But one of the most important things I want to tell people is that genetics is not destiny. You know, you, you may or may not have the gene. If you know you have the gene and you have the genetic piece, you're, you have an uncle and a brother and a father who all had cocaine problems, you've probably got that gene. But just because you have it doesn't mean it's going to do what we call express. By 2010, Ted said he hit rock bottom. He had gone to jail at least 100 times. Some were no more than about three months, nine months, six months, one year. The most time that I've ever done was 18 months at a penitentiary, 18 months. But other than that, they were petty crimes. I never did a crime that I, I never thought I could do the time. Um, you know, I, was, I wasn't the best. All I did was little thefts. Although they got me down, I, I did a, a few uh, identity thefts, uh, theft by deception, uh, all kinds of things of that nature. But uh, unfortunately, I got, it got caught up with me. So that was why, uh, over the years, I never thought I was employable in the line of uh, what I enjoy doing, which is uh, radio, which my uh, education and my gift that God gave me allowed me to do and, and succeed. And nobody was going to give me, a, you know, with that kind of record and, and uh, experience with the streets, they didn't trust me for anything. Ted decided to make a change. After more than a decade of feeding his addiction through criminal activity, he says he turned to God. And that's how he found himself standing on a street corner with a sign. So, to be honest with you, Erica, I thought that people that did stand on the corner and didn't uh, uh, go out there in those uh, 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 stores and steal high theft items, you know, like they were like the lowest of lows. We're both homeless. We both have different means of getting money. But I thought they were lower than me because they're standing there listening to people throwing things at them, spitting on them, and all those things. But he said it was standing at that intersection where he felt connected to his spirituality. I went out uh, on that highway corner and, and committed myself to God and to my relationship, the sacrifices that are needed. I started listening uh, for God's voice and, and the temptations would come in in my heart. And when I, the more I stopped doing uh, the temptations, the better I felt. But whether it was standing out there on that corner, holding a sign, begging for money, listening to what Americans do not deem very favorable of able-bodied men and women who stand on exit ramps, holding signs, begging for money. So he committed me to standing out there with a highway sign that read, I have a God-given gift of voice. I'm an ex-radio announcer who's fallen on hard times. Please, any help would be greatly appreciated. Thank you, and God bless. Now, that was a very lengthy sign. There were a lot of people who looked at the, at the traffic light. Uh, if it turned green before they could finish, they'd go. You know, a lot of the homeless guys that were standing out there holding signs was like, damn, man, you need to shorten that sign. Ain't nobody going to read all that or want to read it. 
you know, but I always wrote the sign, whether the police came by to run me off the corner, I'd tear it up and all, I'd always go right back. I have a God-given gift of voice. Doral Chenoweth is a photojournalist with the Columbus Dispatch, a daily newspaper based in Ohio. In 2010, he was running errands in his neighborhood. There was a particular day when my wife and I were going to buy some stuff at Lowe's, the home improvement store, and we drove two freeway exits from our own house and got a red light, and there was frequently panhandlers at this particular corner. And this one panhandler had this big hair and a big smile and a sign that said something along the lines of, I have a great radio voice, I'm down on my luck, can you help me out? And I think it said, I have a God-given gift of voice, is exactly what it said. And, um, and I rolled down the window, and I said, well, say something. And he did, and it was like, wow, what a great voice. And the light turned green, and I gave him a dollar and took off. Doral was at work when he remembered that man with the golden voice. And I had a mandate from my editors in this era to find a video a day. And um, so I tried my best to find something to, to do every day. And about two weeks later, I needed a video to fulfill this video a day mandate that I had from my editors, where they just wanted a lot of videos. And so I thought about that homeless guy. Doral got into his car and went to find him. I'm on the clock at this point, working. And um, I saw him over on the other freeway exit as I was heading north. And so I looped around and I could have pulled out a, you know, a $5,000 camera and done a, a video with that or even my, my $3,000 still camera. But I happened to have had a $99 flip cam, about the size of a pack of cigarettes. So I turned it on and started the camera and rolled down that freeway exit ramp. And it plays out just like you see it in the video. Hey, I'm going to make you work for your dollar. Say something with that great radio voice. When you're listening to nothing but the best of oldies, you're listening to Magic 98.9. And it comes out just beautiful and magical. And, you know, he's just got that deep baritone voice that resonates. And I gave him a, a buck or two and said, hey, can you meet me across the street? And so I went over across the street and got a parking spot and he walked over. And, you know, as a journalist, a lot of times you're trying to, you know, make connections with people and, you know, you build goodwill and you build trust and you build rapport with people, especially homeless people or people who've been, you know, through a lot of trauma. But in this case, I just kind of turned the camera on the guy and said, tell me your name and what's your situation? Well, when I was 14 years old, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. When I was 14, I kind of listened to one of our area radio announcers. And uh, I went as a field trip to go meet the guy, and he looked nothing like what he sounded like. So I asked him about that, and he said to me, listen, radio is defined theater of mind. The voice just became something of, uh, of a development over years, and I went to school for it. And then alcohol and drugs and a few other things became a part of my life. And hopefully somebody from one of these television or radio said, hey, I need a voiceover, or I, I need something. And I kind of thought, well, it's, he might get one job or two jobs out of this, and that'd be it. And uh, I turned off the camera, talked with him a little while longer, and wished him well, and um, shook his hand, and 
you know, he went back to work on the street corner and I went back to the newspaper. I edited the video that day and it was October 2010. And something else came up later that day and I had my video for the day and somewhere else. And I didn't think much about that video for a long time. So the edited video sat on Doral's computer for months. And then I had another slow news day in January 2011. It must have been January 2nd or January 3rd. And I thought, oh, yeah, I got that one of that homeless guy. And I dusted it off out of the computer and put it online. And again, didn't think about it too much. 24 hours later. A guy calls me at my desk and says, hey, your video is going to go viral. And I said, which video? And, you know, I'm a skeptic. I thought, you know, this guy didn't know what he's talking about. And he says, you know, I work for the local university and your video is number one on Reddit right now. And you might want to tell your IT people to get prepared for an onslaught of hits on, on this video. And I went, okay, thanks. And didn't think much about it. Ten minutes later, CNN calls. And it just, the floodgates opened at that point with media requests, media interviews. Everybody's trying to find Ted. Meanwhile, Ted had no idea what had happened. The concept of viral was lost on him. And I knew nothing about viral. I didn't even have an internet phone. Uh, I thought that uh, viral would have meant that a virus was uh, installed or a virus did this or did that. You know, I was no way I was going to admit or, or, or fess up to nothing on the Internet because I don't have ways and means to put it on there. So when he initially did the video, I lied, of course. It was very public that I lied. You know, I said I had two years clean and I look like a hot mess. Yeah, I thought maybe it was a job possibility. I figured if he had a camera, he's got a microphone. Maybe he'll take it home, look at it and see if I'm worthy of hiring. That was it. I hadn't heard no more from him until that that day. January 4th, 2011, I find out through one of our local radio stations, the Morning Zoo, and uh, uh, find out that uh, there was a viral video. I'm I'm the first viral video of the internet age, or I'm an internet sensation, or any of that. When he found out about the video, Ted thought it sounded too good to be true. He actually thought it was a setup. After all, I had all these children that I had paid very minimal uh, child support on. So I've seen various shows where the uh, uh, deputy uh, police and deputy law enforcement services do what they call a sting operation where they invite people down and, uh, you know, for various things like a million dollars or you won the sweepstakes or we've got a gift card or whatever. Hell no, I'm not coming down there. So I didn't go the first day and they're begging me, begging me to come down. And then lo and behold, I'm finding out Entertainment Tonight, Inside Edition, all these other people, uh, uh, local. I mean, they're all uh, flocked to Columbus, Ohio. And uh, so I go down there and I take a chance. Doral heard that Ted was heading to the local radio station in the morning. And so I went there at like 7 a.m. and he was there. And there was media from all over the nation there. Uh, CBS, NBC, they all set up satellite trucks and sent in national uh, correspondents to, to report on this homeless guy with the golden radio voice. And it just went crazy at that point. It blew my mind how much media attention there was on him and, and how people were interested in this throughout the world. Uh, you know, it went from 
uh, being on the dispatch website, somebody put it on YouTube and you could just sit there and watch the number of clicks go up by the hour. You know, oh, this hour it's got 18 million hits. And then an hour later, it's got 19 million hits, 20 million hits. It just kept rising and rising and rising. And I, you know, I worried a lot about this, this guy, this, you know, this homeless guy and how is he going to handle the attention? And then I saw him at the radio station and I kind of, kind of a fly on the wall kind of guy in a way. I mean, I kind of slipped into the radio station and stood there with all the other news crews and he's being interviewed and I'm snapping a few shots here and there of him doing all this. And um, I was just kind of amazed at the attention that he was getting. And it's kind of like creating a star, I guess, but I didn't mean to, it just happened. Ted was in front of dozens of reporters with cameras, news trucks, all itching to speak with him. They bombard me with a microphone, uh, uh, everything. Everybody's asking me questions and all. I'm overwhelmed. I'm mad as hell. But when the man said that I'm, uh, I forget his name, but he said, I'm with the Today Show with Matt Lauer and Meredith Vieira. Would you like to get on the Today Show? I said, hell yeah, because I knew that the Today Show was in New York, and it was a chance for me to meet my mom, see my mom again. But it wasn't going to be easy to jump on a plane. But I had no ID. I had nothing, no, no ID at all to fly. So this producer of the uh, Today Show, he ran me all around to the various places I had to go. I had to get a, a birth certificate. I had to get a social security card. And he took me all the way, all those places. And uh, I got me some ID, man, and I was on the next flight. We was on United Airlines first class to New York City. Ted flew to New York with his longtime partner, Kathy. And from there, he was launched into stardom. Twenty-four hours earlier, he was holding a piece of cardboard at the side of the road, but now Ted Williams was staying at the Palace Hotel in New York City doing interview after interview. And that man's name is Ted Williams, and he joins us exclusively here on The Early Show this morning. Ted Williams, good morning, sir. Good morning, How are sir. you? It's great good to morning. have you. It's great to be here. Yeah, this is a dream come true, I'm telling you. Honestly. It's that second chance. Tell us what these last 24, 48 hours have been like for you, Ted. Exciting, crazy. That video made Ted Williams the man with the golden voice. He was an international celebrity overnight. And just to put this into context, Twitter had only been operating for five years at this point. Instagram was new. It had just launched months earlier in October 2010. Snapchat didn't exist. Neither did TikTok. So really, the idea of, quote, going viral didn't exist before this. So I asked Doral, what was it about this particular video that caught the world's attention? The fact that the video was so raw and People were looking for that type of content in that era. They wanted the truth. They wanted to hear his voice. And I get to it as quickly as I can. It's something that people could relate to. Everybody drives down freeway exits and sees homeless people. And sometimes you wonder, what are they really like? And this video showed people what this one particular man in Columbus, Ohio, was like. And they gravitated toward it. 
And anybody who's ever had a brother and a or sister or a loved one who's been in rehab or is addicted to drugs or alcohol can relate to that video in a way that if I'd have done a polished news piece and interviewed rehab experts, nobody would have paid attention to it. But because it was so rough and raw, people liked it. Fast forward 10 years later, it's not uncommon to see videos on YouTube with over a million views or more. People make careers out of it. And I wondered, would there be this much buzz around this video if it was released today? Would we see multiple TV crews fly across the country to get an interview with the man with the golden voice? Yeah, it wouldn't happen that way in this era. Uh, you know, in 2021, if you had a viral video and you had a, a somebody's video went viral in somewhere besides New York City, you know they would just do a Skype interview or something like that. But in that day, you know, news crews showed up and people did real reporting and they tried to find this guy. Back in 2011, after the 90 second video went viral. TV producers went to great lengths to get Ted on a plane so he could do interviews in New York City. Doral went to and witnessed the craze over the man with the golden voice. It, it made for a wild time in New York, you know, I'm trying to find Ted and yet do my own appearances on the CBS early show. Uh, what was it called? The CBS morning show. And, and I'm trying to juggle interviews with that there were as many as 20 media requests per hour coming into my phone. It's like every media outlet in the world that couldn't get in touch with Ted could get in touch with me. My, my phone number was out there uh, on my personal website and other places. And so my phone just blew up and you know, I'm getting calls from German TV, you know, Central American radio networks, Japanese TV, all the American networks. Uh, individual radio talk show hosts throughout America were calling and leaving messages and trying to get in touch with me. And I just tried to handle it all as best I could because I figured that this is a good news story. You know, this is great news. I mean, this guy's been discovered again and he's going to be, you know, a star and there's nothing wrong with that. So I tried to answer every media request I could. And it wasn't just interviews. Job offers began rolling in as well. Uh, MSNBC wanted to hire him to do voiceover work. Uh, Kraft Macaroni and Cheese, their advertising agency, did get through to Ted. And Ted, while he was in New York City, went and taped uh, uh, radio spots for Kraft Macaroni and Cheese. And so he had some immediate cash coming in. He even received an offer from the Cleveland Cavaliers to do voiceover work. It was the rags-to-riches story that everyone wanted to see. And although Ted said in interviews that he had been clean for two years, that wasn't the case. He was still struggling with his demons. Well, I was thinking money, money, money. Shit, I, can, I, I don't have to settle for just a little eight ball. I figured, man, and then when they gave me 20,000 cash dollars, Erica, I said, shit, dope man, here I come. I'm buying a, a, a kilo. Because kilos back then was 15 grand, and I was going to get a key of crack or a key of uh, uh, stuff and supply all my friends that I knew that did dope. I'd give them an ounce, an ounce of key. And uh, that's what I was thinking. That's what my mind was thinking. But I knew 
that at that point, it was a much bigger blessing. I felt like all my sacrifices, all my prayers, all my mother's prayers, everything that I've ever done right was finally catching up with me. And I, and I knew it was divine. So I all of a sudden, no sooner than I thought all that party all the time, uh, a room full of naked women and, and bowls of crack just shot straight out of my mind and my thoughts and my theory. But as much as he wished the thoughts would leave his mind, Ted was in the depths of his addiction. He had turned to both drugs and alcohol. In that first week after the video came out, Ted made dozens of TV appearances, extra, Entertainment Tonight, The Late Night Show with Jimmy Fallon. But one of the most notable appearances was The Dr. Phil Show. That's when he was reunited with his children and ex-wife Patty. It's just, it's huge. I'm happy for Teddy. I really am. It became clear that he was still struggling with his addiction. And as part of the Dr. Phil show, Ted and his partner, Kathy, were sent to rehab. First time it was, uh, I only went for eight days and and ran away from there. And they're sending me in in treatment. I was in South Padre Island, Texas. And my wife was in, uh, she was in uh, Houston, Texas at at, uh, Mark uh, Houston. Uh, who was a very, very renowned recovering person. He named a treatment center after himself. It was called the Mark Houston Recovery Center. And she was in Houston. I was on the island, uh, on the Gulf of Mexico. And um, I left. Ted said he left treatment because his manager at the time had allegedly been stealing money from him. The bank that I was banking with sent me a signature card. He was signing checks for my Kraft macaroni and cheese commercial, in which I received that 20 grand cash and residuals there over over two-year period. Ted said when he left the treatment center, he went back to Columbus and fired his then-manager and retained a lawyer. And so my attorney reestablished a relationship with Dr. Phil. He was sent back to rehab. This time, he spent 90 days in treatment. He returned back to the uh, place that I had left, and uh, I completed the 90 days. I got out, and I've been sober ever since. Doral introduced Ted to his newfound fame, and I wondered what he thought of the world watching Ted as he struggled with his addiction. Well, I think watching Ted not have anything was really hard. He had no he had no physical things to show for his success. He had so much money rolling in. I think the uh, the book deal he did was three hundred eighty thousand dollars. He had the Kraft macaroni and cheese money, which must have been like, you know, Christmas checks arriving in the mail every other day. He had royalty checks coming in left and right. He had a contract with the New England cable news channel, and he did voiceover work for them on a daily basis. And all that money that came in seemed to go to rent instead of a mortgage payment. He didn't have a car. He didn't have a driver's license as far as I or he didn't have a he didn't have a car. He didn't have anything. And, you know, where were where was the management there that you know, he should have been buying some things, maybe buying a condominium instead of renting an apartment. It was a shame that he didn't own anything. And to this day I don't think he owned anything except his clothes. And that money just went to family members. It went to iPhone payments. And he bought an iPad. And he bought superficial things. 
While it may have been tough to watch, Doral felt like there wasn't much he could do to help. Ted's 2011 success was outside of my hands. I mean, I couldn't stop it. I couldn't, I, I could barely find Ted. I mean, I saw him a little bit in New York City and we talked there and then he flew off to LA to do the Dr. Phil show and another whole round of media interviews out there. And I just, you know, I flew back to Columbus and kind of watched like everybody else what really happened there. You know, he got to LA and got in arguments with family members and uh, it was all reported in the, you know, the, the celebrity gossip media websites. And it was, it was kind of sad in a way. It was really tough to watch. And I recognized that, you know, he was a, a person who's addicted to drugs and alcohol and, and, you know, crack was his main drug. And that's a horrible drug that just really messes with your mind. As everybody knows, how is he going to handle this? And as a journalist, it's not really my job to stop him from accepting contracts or anything like that. It's my job to cover him and cover this crazy situation. He had at the time an agent and only later did I find out that the agent, you know, also did drugs and, but, but the agent presented himself that morning at the radio station and he seemed competent at that point. And so there wasn't a whole lot that I could do about anything. And, and, you know, it's, it's not my job to suddenly become Ted's agent or to become his gatekeeper. But I think it, the, the fame hit too fast. And just because you have all that money doesn't mean that everything's going to be all right in your life. You've got to still deal with these demons. And the money may have just made it worse for many years. He said the sudden attention was overwhelming for him, too, so he couldn't imagine what it was like for Ted. Ted and his girlfriend got into a really nice rehab center in Texas, and Ted spent two months there of a three-month term, and he was ready to go home. And he said, I'm, I'm cured. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm ready to get back to life, get back to spending some of this money that he had. And an agent at the time, Brett Adams, said no. You stay there and complete the treatment program. Stay another month. And he made Ted and his girlfriend stay in that treatment program another month. And when Ted did get out of it, um, Ted had a sober coach. And you know, I met the guy that came to Columbus. And you know, Ted tried to, get, tried to stay sober. And I think it worked by and large. While working on this episode... I watched some of the first interviews Ted did. So, so your mom has lived long enough to see what yes. is going to be, we hope, redemption. Words like redemption, second chance. Ted said back in 2011 that he had been clean for two years, but later admitted that wasn't the case. It sounded like there was a lot of pressure for him to prove that he was better, that he was no longer dealing with his addiction and was worthy of the world's attention because of that. Denny Carice, remember, she's the clinical psychologist and chief science officer at Recovery Centers of America. She remembers first seeing Ted's story. Well, I saw the video of this gentleman, you know, who had formerly been homeless, and then the voiceover of his beautiful, lovely voice, you know, and it was really touching to me. 
Um, and when I saw that and I heard him speak, I knew that he would be um, somebody that people would seek, you know? I mean, he had a just lovely voice. And my first thought was going back to recovery, this idea of don't get too well too fast, you know? Be very careful, you know, that that's something like exploding into a career, particularly one in kind of Hollywood and, and all that, um, with notoriety, with some level of fame, is incredibly difficult, particularly for people in recovery and for somebody really newly in recovery, you know? They say, don't change anything the first year, you know, don't get a new job, don't get divorced, don't get married, don't, you know, don't move, don't whatever. And, and he had, he changed everything, you know? So my first um, thought of his voice was that it was lovely. And my next thought of his, you know, where he seemed to be going was was fear for him and caution. Denny said seeing people focus only on his voice without providing the care and support he needed was a problem. So it was concerning for me. I mean, what, what it seemed to me and what was clear, I think, is that there was just this capitalization on his skill, on his voiceover capability um, and how lovely his voice was and that there was no thought to him as a person, you know, as somebody who um, was newly in recovery, as somebody who had gone, um, you know, so far in his addiction to become homeless. Um, and there was no concern for how all of this may affect him. So again, I felt incredibly sad that, that uh, while everybody loves a Cinderella story, you know, this one was headed for and did result for at least some time, you know, in a, in a really huge downfall. And, and those downfalls are tough. The stigma of having an addiction um, is really significant. And then the stigma of having a relapse or recurrence and needing to go back to treatment or, or having it affect your job and everything else is even worse because people figured you got treatment. Well, I guess you didn't, you know, it didn't work for you, you know? And so the, the, you know, need that when somebody needs treatment, it's difficult to say, I need help. And then to say, Hey, I got help. I was okay. Now I need more help is even tougher. It's something Doral remembers thinking as well. There is. Behind these rags to riches stories, you know, when people are broke and down and out, there's frequently a mental health problem that's behind that. There's a substance abuse problem that's behind them being down and out. And we need to understand that. And when they suddenly become rich and famous, uh, That problem does not go away. We have an issue in this country of substance abuse, and we need to confront it head on and pour even more money into it and more resources into it and help these people through those difficult times and help them become the people that they deserve to be without the crack, the fentanyl, the heroin, the marijuana, the the alcohol, the bourbon, whatever it is. And that's the takeaway from this is we need even more treatment programs and we need to be able to help these people get stabilized. It's been over 10 years since that minute and a half video was posted on the internet forever changing the life of Ted Williams. And the last decade brought some monumental highs and some incredible lows for the man with the golden voice. But those who know him are glad that he seems to be doing okay. Ted's in a much better place 
since this video went viral. I mean, he is no longer on crack. He was able to spend a, you know, he was able to reunite with his family and his daughters and his sons. And I've met some of them and they were very grateful for the video going viral because it kind of healed their family relationship in some ways. And so it has a silver lining in that regard. Doral spoke with Ted just before we did our interview. He said that 2021 was a challenge for Ted, just like it has been for many of us. I think COVID was really rough on Ted. I think the year-long quarantine in a small apartment on the west side of Columbus, you know, the apartment was owned by a friend of his, was really hard. His girlfriend of 17 years, who he'd been through with so much, actually longer than 17 years, she passed away, not from COVID, but from a set of other health problems. She died in a nursing home in Columbus, and he was not able to be with her at that point. It was tough. It was really tough on him. Ted spoke to me about Kathy and her passing only briefly. You know, my wife and I, her health had deteriorated uh, in the the past uh, year or so. And Erica, she died two months ago, three months ago. And I've been with her for over 30 years. And uh, I don't want to get too deep about that because it brings emotions that kind of set me off. Because I miss her dearly, Erica. And, uh, you know, life goes on. Life without her is something he's learning to live with. He says he's been clean for 10 years, but recovery is never easy. Recently, Ted has also opened up about the sexual abuse he endured in his youth. I've had psychiatrists uh, uh, in the military, and he took my my trust. I have like a vague memory of that, but uh, I knew it was something that happened in my childhood. He says acknowledging that abuse has been part of his recovery. Every day we awake, there is sacrifices to be made with temptations. We are all faced with various temptations in any aspect in our walks of life. Resist them. You resist them by being strong and continuing to build. You will definitely feel better. You will put a a gaining point in your life. Just be strong, everybody. Be strong. That's all, because you're going to have some obstacles. He said he's turning his attention to other projects he's passionate about, like his own podcast called The Golden Voice Show. He will soon also be releasing his second book, The Power of Believing. Believing is the key. And uh, I have my, my, you know, I again, I, without uh, spreading any, any dirt or, or making my life uh, feel like a poster child for us, uh, uh, sorrowful uh, plight. Mine is to be strong, be patient, um, to build on your life and to um, not forget where where you've come from, but to remember that you don't want to go back wherever it came from. If it was a life of despair, you don't want to go back. Just remember what were the things that took you there and how strong can you be to overcome it and keep the faith And remember, last but not least, faith without works is dead. The story of the man with the golden voice is not a fairy tale. A Cinderella story seldom is. But if you take a moment to stop and listen, you might be surprised by what you hear.
Thank you for joining me this week. Global News What Happened To is written and produced by me, Erica Bella, with producer Dila Velasquez. Our audio producer is Rob Johnson. Also, thanks goes to Drew Hasselback, supervising national online journalist for Global News. Let us know what you thought of this episode and please share it with a friend. It will help us grow the show and bring you more incredible stories. You can also help us out by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also reach out to me personally. We're always looking for stories, so if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Vella or email me at erica.vella at globalnews.ca. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.